Highland Falls, El Paso, Clarksville, Watertown, and from other important military capitals around the globe. Eye on Defense brings the top military and defense issues into focus. Eye on Defense is proudly sponsored by Big Sarge Pre-Owned TA-50 Emporium and The Last Hope Jewelry and Pawn. And now, citizens of Earth, brace yourselves for the next episode of Eye on Defense. Defense, 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 defense. All right, we're back, everybody. Today is uh, <clears throat> 28 April, early morning of 28 April. I was up late. I'm up late. Uh, and this is episode 118, I think. Yeah, 118. And I have one, two, three, eight stories. Um, most of them are in the States. They got this big aviation uh, summit going on in Nashville. I think it's over with now. It's called uh, Quad A. And it means, I looked it up here, Army Aviation Association of America, also known as Quad A. It was from 26 to 28 April. Uh, they had a press release. So the Army Aviation Mission Solutions Summit, sponsored by Army Aviation Association of America, will be held 26 to 28 April uh, 20, 2023 um, in Nashville, Tennessee. This is the 40th anniversary of the Army Aviation Branch. It's a two-and-a-half-day event brings the entire Army aviation community together for solutions for warfighters. And they got all kinds of stuff going on. Here's some of the guest speakers they had. Uh, Chief of Staff of the Army, General McConville. Uh, they had the G8 of the Army, Lieutenant General Eric Peterson. They had the PEO Aviation, Major General Robert Barry. See who else they had. Uh, the Commanding General of the Aviation Center, uh, Major General Michael McCurry. Not Fort Rucker anymore, it's Fort, Fort Novacell. They had 101st Airborne CG, uh, Major General Joseph McGee out of Fort Campbell. And that's basically, so there's a few stories that we're going to do tonight out of there. How many did I get from there? Maybe three, maybe even four uh, from uh, Quad A out of Nashville. Three of them from Jen Judson. She was very busy. She wrote, uh, we're doing three of her stories. She wrote, did two on the 27th and one on the 28th. Or maybe I'm missing that up. Anyway. Um, yeah, it ended, it ended on the 20th. It's actually the 29th. I'm sorry. It's the 29th. It's like 1 a.m. So, Or it's like midnight, 1 a.m. here. So, uh, anyway, enough of that. So, we'll get to about eight stories. Uh, the first, big, the biggest story, though, is kind of comes from there, from Quad A in Nashville. It's the Army, uh, there, was an there was an accident in Alaska, I believe. And uh, this one actually comes from uh, Breaking Defense, Lee Farron, 28 April, which was yesterday. Like I said, it's about 1 a.m. where I'm at. Uh, Army orders aviation stand down in a wake of fatal helo accidents. On Thursday, which was day before yesterday, because it's like Saturday at 1 a.m., Three soldiers were killed in a mid-air collision between two Apache helicopters in Alaska, weeks after nine died in a Blackhawk incident in Kentucky. Uh, the U.S. Army announced, today announced, which was 28, which was yesterday, U.S. Army today announced a service-wide aviation stand-down following a pair of deadly helicopter accidents that claimed the lives of a dozen soldiers. The author's adding both of those incidents up. 
Uh, the stand-down grounds all Army aviators except those participating in critical missions, the service said in an early evening press release. Active duty units are required to complete a 24-hour stand-down sometime next week while the Guard and Reserve units can complete the stand-down by the end of the month, which, I mean, shoot, the end of the month is, oh, I'm sorry, the end of next month, my bad, that's May. Uh, here's a quote from Chief of Staff General McConville. The safety of our aviators is a top priority, and this stand-down is an important step to make certain we are doing everything possible to prevent accidents and protect our personnel. Uh, during this stand-down, we will focus on safety and training protocols to ensure our pilots and crews have the knowledge, training, and awareness to safely complete their assigned mission. The Army cited two deadly incidents just weeks apart as a reason for the stand-down. Late last month, nine soldiers died when two Blackhawks collided during what the Army called a routine night training flight in Kentucky. Then on Thursday, a couple days ago, three more soldiers were killed in a mid-air collision between two Apache helicopters in Alaska, the Army said. Uh, here's another quote from the Chief. Uh, General McCava, who's a former Army aviator, it is their loss that makes it all more important that we review our safety procedures and training protocols and ensure we are training and operating at the highest levels of safety and proficiency. The service said during the stand-down it will review risk approval, risk management process, Army Aviation Maintenance Training Program, aircrew training standardization and management, and supervisory responsibility. The Army will also assess the flight mission briefing process with an emphasis on risk mitigation, crew selection, flight planning, crew flight briefings, debriefings, and after-action reviews. The news came just hours after the end of a major annual gathering of Army aviators put on by the Army, Association, Army Aviation Association of America, for which McConville was in attendance, which we just told you that. So, quad A. So, uh, terrible news coming out of the Army in Alaska with the two helicopters. So that's number story number one. And then we're going to, while we're talking about aircraft, we're going to go to a Chinook story uh, from Jen Judson. And so this is coming out of Nashville, uh, dated 27 April by Jen Judson. Will... German, uh, well, German purchase of Boeing Chinooks relieved pressure on U.S. Army. And this has got to do with uh, uh, the Army not wanting to buy Chinooks or upgrade Chinooks, but Congress telling the Army, you got to buy Chinooks. Boeing, who makes the Chinook, is basically saying, hey, if we don't have enough people buying Chinooks, we're going to shut the line down, production line, which gets in the bigger problem of the defense industry and the industrial base and all that stuff. That's kind of what the story is about. So let me get right to it. So. Uh, this is out of Nashville where the Quad A is, was going on. Boeing hopes Congress will fund more CH-47F Block II Chinook helicopters for the Army and FY24 budget, which is against the service's wishes, in order to keep the company's production line busy. But the service acquisition chief said in a recent hearing that Germany's plan to buy the aircraft should be enough to support Boeing and avoid the, avoid the Army having to buy more. And of course, we know the services acquisition chief is Mr. Doug Bush, who we kind of like on this program. Uh, back to the article, the Army decided in 2019 that it would not procure the CH-47F Block II for the active fleet, 
so it could begin heavier investments in its future long-range assault aircraft, also known as FLARA, and the future attack reconnaissance aircraft, also known as FARA, that it wants to field in the early 2030s. The service is still seeking 69 of the latest Chinook variant for special operations in the form of the MH-47G model. Boeing won a contract last year to build 60 CH-47 Chinook helicopters for Germany. The Block II version of the Chinook featured new rotor blades, but the Army abandoned the effort a year ago due to excessive rotor blade vibrations that, according to Pentagon Chief's weapons tester, posed a flight risk. The version also incorporates a new fuel system, electrical system, and a stronger airframe to increase, to increase lift capacity. Capability, I'm sorry, not capacity. Uh, since 2019, Congress has pushed back on the Army's decision and injected funding into its budget, forcing the service to buy Block II variant for the active force. Over the last three budget cycles, Congress has funded a total of 10 Block II Chinooks for the regular Army. Now again in the 24 request, the Army has asked for only six G-model helicopters and none for the active force. Uh, here's a quote from uh, Mr. Doug Bush, the Army Acquisition Chief. The Army does recognize the importance of the CH-47, industrial base, and especially the human capital aspect of it. It's vital. Uh, he said that during a House Tactical Air and Land Forces Subcommittee last week. Uh, another quote from Doug Bush. The budget request did include, once again, our six aircraft for Special Operations Forces, he added. One thing that has changed is good news for the, that the German military has decided to buy the CH-47 which gives us the opportunity to retain that workforce. Whichever direction the, ar the Army ultimately goes, it buys us some more time. Uh, back, uh, the Army has hoped that foreign military sales might help shore up Boeing's production line to keep the industrial base for the Chinook going strong. Uh, the Army Chief of Staff General McConville argued shortly after the service decided to curb the Block II variant for the regular Army that foreign military sales could bolster the line. Army officials pointed to, to both Germany and Israel as potential customers, but Israel ultimately chose the Sikorsky-made CH-53K King Stallion for its heavy lift program in 2021. Boeing officials told Defense News in 2019 that even if Germany and Israel each went with a CH-47, it wouldn't be enough to support the production line, while also keeping the workforce and sub-tier suppliers active over time. And here's a quote from Boeing. Boeing Senior Director from International Government Services, Mark Ballou, told Defense News on April 27 at the Army Aviation Association of America's annual conference, Quad A, that the sale to Germany is a huge help, but it only keeps the production line in Pennsylvania at a minimum sustainment rate. Uh, the company also signed a contract with Egypt to build 12 additional Chinooks, and South Korea has signed a letter of agreement for 18 which will help keep the gap, which will help fill the gap, according to Ken Inland, Eland, Boeing Chinook's program manager. Uh, Eland says he's hopeful Congress will again fund more Block II Chinooks to the active force in the FY24 budget, which will contribute to the health of the supply chain and the production line. I think we got another quote from Mr. Bush coming up. Boeing and Congress are due for a more definitive answer on Army's plan for the active force this year. Uh, Mr. Bush noted that there's a decision point in 2023 
which would feed in the, the FY25 budget request being built now on where it will ultimately, ultimately land when it comes to providing the latest variant to the active force. Uh, here's a quote. The aircraft that Congress has added for the Army to procure, we have procured and we are going to field, Bush said. But I think at the time, it's a question of balancing resources across the entire Army. That's the question in front of Army senior leaders with regard to where this falls in the mix. Uh, but the Army has, a set sight, has set sights on future vertical lift endeavors. While it's important right now to get far and far over the hump, get it fielded, and there's a program of record. Uh, that was from Mr. Bush. And General McConville told reporters at the Quad A conference on 27 April, having that transformational capabilities where we want to go, we'd love to continue building out the CS-47. What really comes down to is money, of course. And of course, the Army's budget did not raise that much from last year, if, if at all. I think if you put in uh, inflation, it didn't raise at all. So anyway, uh, so that's the second story on Chinooks. Next, we're going to go to New Zealand since we're talking about helicopters. I'm kind of jumping around. If you follow the show, you know I try to tie all these stories together as best I can. Sometimes I'm more successful than, than others. Uh, here's a story from New Zealand. This is from Defense News, 26 April. New Zealand seeks industry input for maritime helicopter and drones. I uh, always like to do a story from uh, New Zealand, Australia, Korea, the Pacific, Japan. Got another story from Japan coming up too, a really good one. Uh, we'll stick with New Zealand right now. New Zealand seeks industry input for maritime helicopters from Nick Lee Frampton, 26 April. From Wellington, New Zealand, New Zealand's military issued a request for information, RFI, on April 24 for naval helicopters and aerial drones to replace eight Cayman uh, Common SH-2G Sea Sprites operated by the Royal New Zealand Navy. The Defense Force's 2019 annual report said the country will replace its maritime helicopter fleet by 27 in order to prevent a capability gap arising from the end-of-service life of the Sea Sprite fleet. In November 21, an Opportunities Workshop for the Maritime Helicopter Replacement Project mentioned a planned withdrawal of the SH-2G. 2GI Sea Sprite helicopter in 2028. The newly released RFI mentions deliveries to the Navy from mid 2027. And according to the Army's, I'm sorry, according to the military's 2019 Defense Capability Plan, the replacement program will cost more than U.S. $616 million or $1 billion New Zealand dollars. The tender closes on 21 June 2023 and does not provide further information on the uncrewed aerial systems sought by the military. The Sea Sprite is able to operate from the Navy's two frigates, the Sea Lift ship Canterbury and the tanker, uh, let's see, AOTEA, AOTEAROA, AOTEAROA, and the two offshore patrol vessels, and two offshore patrol vessels. Period. Okay, the helicopter's weapons include Penguin anti-ship missiles and MK-46 torpedoes. Uh, the 53-foot-long aircraft has a maximum takeoff weight of 14,200 pounds. Potential replacement options are larger and heavier. The Navy uses the Westland Wasp helicopters for more than 30 years. 
until replacing that fleet with four uh, SH-2F Sea Sprites in 1997. Uh, five of these Sea Sprites entered in service in, 20, in 2001, and the SH-2GI versions have been flown with this force since 2015. That's end of story. Really didn't say much about UAS, though, did it? When did they talk about UAS? The tender closes 21 June and does not provide further information on uncrewed aerial systems stopped by the military. So while we're on that, uh, I won't I want to belabor this. Have you heard that term UAS, which means unmanned aircraft system? I heard they're changing the name of to uncrewed aircraft system. And here we just see it in an article where they call it uncrewed aerial system. So anyway, um, you'll probably start seeing that from unmanned to uncrewed. Uh, I think the Navy already calls their stuff uncrewed anyway. Uh, all right, moving on. So now we're going back to uh, Quad A in Nashville from another story from Jen Judson. This is a good story. Um, sometimes we talk about project convergence for the Army especially, or we have sensor to shooter, uh, blah, blah, blah. Well, this is like a feeder exercise for uh, uh, Project Convergence, this thing called EDGE. Real good story here. Uh, here we go. Jim Judson, 28 April, yesterday, more international forces joined U.S. Army's Aviation EDGE Experiment, or Aviation Experiment EDGE. And EDGE means something. It means Experimental Demonstration Gateway Exercise. Experimental Demonstration Gateway Exercise. I give that a solid two for an acronym. So here we go. Here's the story again from Nashville, which is the Quad A. Uh, now entering its third year, the U.S. Army plans to bring more international partners into the Experimental Demonstration Gateway Exercise, also known as EDGE, next month, which is May, to improve the ability to connect, share information, and execute missions together more seamlessly, according to the service's two-star general in charge of aviation modernization. Um, we have a much larger coalition presence. This is from Major General Wally Rugen. The Army's future vertical lift cross-functional team, he told Defense News in an interview ahead of the Army's Aviation's Association of America Summit in Tennessee, also known as Quad A. And this guy, Major General Wally Rugen, uh, he's the future vertical lift cross-functional teams. Sometimes we talk about cross-functional teams. Basically, the cross-functional team is in charge of requirements for those two programs that we talk about, FLARA and FARA, and, of course, Future Tactical UAS. That's part of his cross-functional team also. Uh, so he's kind of an important person, this uh, Major General Rugen. So back to the article. So Australia, Canada, France, and the United Kingdom, all of which observed the exercise last year, are now participating, Rugen said. Those nations will join Netherlands, Italy, and Germany, which participated in the exercise in 2022 at Dugway Proving Ground in Utah. Another quote from the Major General, I don't want to oversell it, but we have seen seven that are bringing technology, two that are observers, and we actually have others who have sent in some late requests, so that number may grow by the time May happens. It may be up to 10 with us, he added. We are working through the paperwork and foreign disclosure stuff, but the coalition piece is really good. With the addition of more partners, the Army will continue to work on its secret enclave that connects countries on the battlefield at a classified level not previously achieved. 
The coalition force plans to go through hundreds, if not thousands, of iterations of machine-to-machine call for fire while also testing massive traffic, Rugen explained. If the force at the Experimental Demonstration Gateway Exercise, also known as EDGE, can resolve such a challenge, I'll be very, very excited, he said at a press briefing during the Quad A Summit. EDGE will take place at Yuma Proving Ground, Arizona in May, where events will challenge the U.S. Army and its growing number of partners as a services experiment with concepts and capabilities meant to enhance mission performance in the aerial tier. The camp the campaign applies space, aviation, and network capabilities to show the Army and the Joint Force how the Army and the Joint Force would fight in various theaters. 2021 iteration focused on the Indo-Pacific region. The experimental exercise is meant to feed into Project Convergence, which we know, if you follow the show, is a larger campaign of learning that examples and tests how the Army plans to fight against advanced adversaries across all domains of warfare using capabilities laid for fielding in 2030 and beyond. Uh, next project convergence is in spring of 2024. I'm not sure where that's going to be. Do we need to talk about what the five domains are? Uh, I think you already know land, sea, air, there's three, and then cyber is four, and then space is number five. Uh, moving on. Last year, uh, the EDGE exercise focused on the European theater and centered on a wet gap crossing, which is think about just crossing a big river. The U.S. Army's 82nd Airborne Division and other allied units were tasked with defeating an Army's integrated, I'm sorry, the enemy's integrated air defense system that led to a second phase introducing maneuver forces through air assaults to seize two different pieces of terrain. This year, the exercise will focus on the Indo-Pacific theater and will test the capability across the vast expanse of territory by tying the Yuma-based exercise to Northern Edge, which is a joint military training event in Fort Wainwright, Alaska, all the way down to Joint Base Lewis-McChord in Washington State. Two of the Army's three established multi-domain task forces will participate in the exercise. The other task force is European-based. So we know that there's three multi-domain task force. I mean, this this article is a great article. It, it brings in all the stuff that we always talk about: project convergence, multi-domain task force, all that stuff. Participants will use 120 technologies at the exercises and increase over previous years. Major General Rugen said, uh, "Almost done." The Army will continue to experiment with, with what it calls deep sensing capabilities using aircraft, air-launched effects unmanned aircraft, sensors, and, and command and control capabilities to see farther, communicate faster, and penetrate enemy territory while keeping piloted aircraft out of the range of threats. To achieve deep sensing on the battlefield, Rugen said the Army is working to integrate technology developed in Intelligence, Surveillance, and Reconnaissance Task Force within the Army Cyber Command. And then... Contested logistics will also have a stronger focus in the exercise as well, Rugen said, given its increased priority as the Army modernizes and prepares to operate from environments under constant surveillance or threat from fort to port. Contested logistics, remember we kind of talked about that a few episodes ago. Army Futures Command, AFC out of Austin, Texas, um, General Rainey, created a new cross-functional team, which was called Contested Logistics, and they're going to run out of uh, Huntsville, Redstone Arsenal is where they're putting that one. Anyway, back to the article, last paragraph. Uh, 
While the introduction of new partners, some new capability and development with allies is undergoing testings, for instance, Rugen said Canada is bringing an uncrewed rotorcraft to continue working on related concepts, and the Netherlands is bringing a fifth-generation fighter jet. All right, that's end of that article. I dropped my notes here, and I'm going to pick them up off the floor. So that's our edge exercise. Now, remember the edge exercise we talked about in the article. It feeds the project convergence. And project convergence is kind of the Army's, in quotations, version of joint all-domain JADC2 command and control, which ties sensor to shooter across the battlefield. And we have a nice article from on the Titan system. I think we haven't done a... I think the last time we did a Titan article was back in October. Um, where is it at? Here we go. This is from Breaking Defense, Jasper Gill, 26 April. Uh, Army to test Titan prototypes this summer as it moves toward down select. And of course, Titan is kind of a, a prototype for the sensor to shooter. And sensor could be a ground sensor, could be an air sensor, could be a space sensor. Space sensor, and the sensor will talk to, talk, communicate, network with a weapon, an effector. Now we talk about effectors, a weapon, something that's going to affect, kill, uh, whatever, whatever effect you're going to want. So you got sensor and effector, sensor, shooter, however you want to type. That's what this Titan system does. It's probably best I just get the article and just shut up, right? So here we go. Army to test Titan prototypes this summer as it moves toward down select. Titan is a services ground station meant to process data from space and land-based sensors using artificial intelligence, which will then be sent off to the right shooter in parentheses as part of the core concept of JADC2, Joint All-Domain Command and Control. Good, it's a good subject. We cover this subject. If you're new to the podcast, we talk about this every once in a while. Uh, we're very interested in it. Um, I think we did six or seven or even eight Project Convergence stories last year. Uh, and again, this is kind of feeding into that. So here we go. The Army will be in testing prototypes of its tactical intelligence targeting access node, also known as Titan, Solid 3 on the acronym scale and is incorporating soldier feedback into its design as it gets closer to a prime vendor later this year. The services program executive officer responsible for the effort today, said today. Uh, And here's a quote from him. This is Mr. Mark Kitts, PEO, program executive officer for intelligence, electronic warfare, and sensors. He said this at a C4 ISR net conference. Throughout the summer, we will go through a developmental test of the prototypes running three real-world scenarios, leveraging both manned ISR, overhead ISR, and ground-based ISR, leveraging joint service technologies in order to build confidence that we're selecting the right prototype to move forward in a production situation for our Titan capability. Just a reminder to everybody, ISR means intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance. A little bit about the Titan here. The Titan is a services ground station meant to process data from space and land-based sensors using artificial intelligence, which will then be sent off to the right shooter, uh, which is the core concept for the Pentagon's Joint All-Domain Command and Control Initiative, JADC2. Uh, Two companies, Palatair, 
Palantir, and Raytheon in 2021 were awarded initial contracts worth $8.5 million each for the first year-long phase of the program, which consisted of system design and software development. Then last year, the companies received $36 million each for the next 14th month phase to build prototypes. But by the fourth quarter of this fiscal year, the Army plans on choosing only one to pursue uh, after incorporating feedback from soldiers using the prototypes out at Hunter Army Airfield in Savannah, Georgia. So fourth quarter of 23 will be, we'll do the math here, September, August, July. That's So July, July August, September's fourth quarter. So they're going to down-select between Palantir and Raytheon. Uh, so here's another quote, and so we're actually leveraging soldier input on how we're going to define the future of that capability and how we're going to go through a contractual downselect to get to to get after the capability what that will define the future of our army. And so we're really excited to have soldiers involved in it. This guy, Mr. Kitts, said. Mark Kitts, yep. Uh, he added that the Army has also built what it calls a pre-Titan prototype, a space-based capability for the first multi-domain task force. And of course, if you follow the program, you know the first multi-domain task force is stationed at Fort Lewis, Washington. Uh, another quote from him, that recently, that recently deployed in the first multi-domain task force out to the Philippines and actually helping support first MDTF in their operations in Indo-PACOM. So we're seeing a lot of the progress in the Titan program. However, a lot of work has to be done as we sort 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 this out this summer. Getting through this developmental test environment and building our first real prototypes of the Titan. During last year's project convergence experiment, the Army tested pre-Titan prototypes, ability to relay images from satellites to commanders and weapon systems to specifically test space links. Information taken from the pre-prototype at Project Convergence was meant to inform the Titan program as it progresses. So anyway, fourth quarter's coming up, and we'll see what the downselect is between, what were the two companies, Palantir and Raytheon. All right, moving on. Uh, Gimler's, another story from uh, Nashville, another story from... Jen Judson and Defense News. We're talking about high Mars stuff now. Uh, here we go. Lockheed Martin wins 4.8 billion guided missile, uh, guided rocket contract. This is from Jen Judson again from Nashville to Quad A. The Army on Thursday awarded Lockheed Martin 4.8 billion dollar deal for guided multiple launch rocket system, which the U.S. has sent large numbers to Ukraine, also known as Gimlers. Now I didn't figure that out on my own. Uh, I know somebody that worked in those HIMARS units, and he called them Gimlers, so I'm stealing that from him. Uh, so the Army has, has been providing Gimlers along with high-mobility artillery rocket system launchers, also known as HIMARS, used to fire them to Ukraine since last summer to help it fend off a Russian invasion. The Army has not disclosed the number of Gimlers sent to the country. No, I'm sorry, the Pentagon has not disclosed the number of Gimlers sent to the country. Apologize. Uh, the rocket, uh, the service plans to ramp up Gimlers production from 6,000 rockets a year to 14,000 a year and expects to sign a multi-year deal for them in 2024. 
fiscal year 2024 thanks to a new congressional authority. Multi-year contracts, usually reserved for expensive and large programs, will provide longer-term certainty that can lower costs. Work on the contract announced Wednesday is expected to be completed by 30 October 2026, according to the Pentagon. Uh, is there a quote here from Lockheed Martin? Yes, there is. Mr. Jay Price, Vice President of Lockheed Martin's Missiles and Fire Control, said in a statement that the company is working closely with our Army customer and supply chain partners who are moving with unprecedented speed to ramp up production capacity, supporting the urgent need for this highly, highly reliable, combat-proven rocket. In addition to boosting Gimler's production, Lockheed is also working on an extended-range version of the rocket and plans to conduct another flight test of the upgraded system later this year. Uh, that came from this Mrs. Becky Withrow, who told Defense News Thursday at the Quad A. Lockheed is hoping the Army will make a decision in 2024 on whether to move the extended range version into production line, uh, this person added, Mrs. Withrow. That's the end of the story. That was kind of a short story. But the takeaway from that is Lockheed got $4.8 billion for Gimlers. And maybe there's an extended range version, and maybe not. Uh, what's next? So we went from Titan to Gimler's. We only got two stories left. What are we doing on time? 33 minutes. Jeez, not a long episode. Now, these stories are kind of long. Uh, and they are from National Defense. We haven't done National Defense story for a while. Uh, their stories are usually really in-depth and comprehensive. I don't know if the comprehensive is the right word. How about long? Uh, so those writers at National Defense, they, they take their time and they do it, you know, they write a long article. So we have two articles. One's a railgun article and one's a, uh, a SOCOM. I might as well go to the railgun first because we just talked about Gimlers. And this is from, who wrote this article? Uh, Stu Magnuson. From 17 April, kind of an old article, uh, Japan looks to partner with the United States on railgun project. So here we go. It's a futuristic technology that has been in development off and on for more than 100 years. Electromagnetic railguns were first conceived in France during World War I. Since then, everyone from Nazis in Germany to China to Russia to India and the United States, the U.S. Army has attempted to feel the potentially game-changing weapon of war. The U.S. Navy, after spending some 15 years and $500 million developing a railgun for destroyers, gave up on the idea in 2021. But the railgun concept is not dead. Japan's Ministry of Defense is looking to partner with the United States on a railgun program that could be used to counter hypersonic weapons, a senior Japanese official told National Defense recently. A little bit about the railgun here. A railgun uses electricity flowing between two parallel conductors to shoot a non-explosive projectile at high speeds over long distances. The velocity results in such a powerful impact that explosives are not needed to cause considerable damage. Despite the concept being around more than a century, no militaries have successfully fielded a railgun. Uh, there's this guy named Mr. Mishima, who's a vice commissioner and chief technology officer at the Japanese Ministry of Defense Acquisition, Technology, and Logistics Agency, listed a railgun 
as the military's top research and development priorities at the DSEI Japan conference recently. When pressed for details, he said the agency had been doing basic research on the technology for 10 years, but it could use help bringing the technology over to the finish line. There's a possibility that U.S. defense contractors could join the program, he said in an interview. Here's a quote from uh, Mr. Mishima, and it says, We could use help with a guidance system and power storage. Those are your strengths. We have strengths, for example, in constructing the rails and material sciences, he said. The primary Japanese contractor on the program is Japanese Steelworks, and Mishima said he encouraged its executives to reach out to counterparts in the United States, such as BAE Systems and General Atomics, to see if they could join the program. BAE Systems was the primary contractor with the U.S. Navy's attempt to field a railgun. The Army contracted with General Atomics to research land-based options, such as integrating a gun on a tank or a, for long-range artillery. But the Navy soured on the technology and cut off funding in 2021, and the Army contract expired about the same time. And here's a quote from the Navy. The decision to pause the EMRG program, I assume that means railgun, is consistent with the department-wide reform initiatives to free up resources in support of other Navy priorities, which include improving offensive and defensive capabilities such as direct energy, hypersonic missiles, and electronic warfare systems, the Navy told Military.com upon the program's cancellation in July of 2021. However, hypersonic defense is what Japan sees as the gun's primary application. It could be used as land base for island defense and shore-to-ship applications, uh, Mishima added. Hypersonic missiles and aircraft are defined as highly maneuverable and can reach Mach 5 or higher, which is the speed railguns could be expected to achieve. Another quote from Mr. Mishima, he says, If we can demonstrate the railgun, the United States might change its mind on technology, and it would be a win-win for everyone, he said. The two U.S. contractors who most recently worked on railgun technology, which we just named, General Atomics and BAE, uh, acknowledged that they had been contacted by the Japanese Ministry of Defense. BAE Systems, while under contract with the Office of Naval Research, achieved 32 megajoule railgun, I guess that's the size of a railgun, a 32 megajoule railgun, in a laboratory setting that could have potentially reached distances of 220 miles at Mach 7.5, which is 10 times faster or 10 times farther than a typical ship-mounted gun, a company press release said. Phase two of the program was to deliver a working prototype, but technical hurdles concerning the overheating of the railgun couldn't be overcome. Press reports at the time stated. National Defense asked BEA Systems a series of questions about the railgun and the maturity of the program before the Navy ended the program. Uh, and here's their spokesman from BAE. He said in an email statement, BAE has spoken with the Japanese government and industry about the railgun and its capabilities. We work closely with the U.S. Department of Defense to support international allies and partners and provide innovative solutions to deter current and future threats. It sounds like a commercial from Mr. Tim Paintner. Uh, here we go. Now from General Atomics. General Atomics, after working with the Navy on railgun technology in the 2000s, teamed with the Army to develop a railgun that could be part of a mobile cannon or part of a tank. Uh, 
Department of Defense Ordnance Technology Consortium gave a gave the company a three-year contract in 2018 to evaluate mature railgun weapon system capabilities in support of Army Armament Research Development Engineering Command. Uh, let's see. I think that used to be called RDEC. Moving on. The company delivered a 10 megajoule multi-mission medium-range railgun weapon system for testing at Dugway Proving Ground in Utah. The prototype had a goal of firing a projectile more than 60 miles. So real quick, a 10 megajoule railgun will get you 60 miles. And the Navy had one, a 32 megajoule, which would get you 220 miles. Okay. So the bigger the megajoule, the further the range. All right. Moving on. General Atomics work with the Army ended in 2021. However, over the years, the, car the company has invested its own research and development dollars into technology when it wasn't under contract, a spokesman said. Uh, and here's a uh, quote from General Atomics. Megan Elke, Director of Strategic Communications and Marketing at General Atomics, said in an email statement that over the last year, General Atomics Electromagnetic Systems has met with both the Acquisition Technology and Logistics Agency and Japan Steelworks a number of times to discuss Japan's railgun program. Uh, we continue to work with the Army and other services in the United States on applying technologies we developed on the railgun program to advance our weapons systems portfolio. She added that the company is eager, eager to work with Japan on the project. Kind of a long article, almost done. Uh, there's a quote from this guy named Peter Singer, strategist, whatever. I didn't know that was a thing. Uh, he said the Navy's railgun project wasn't very mature, but had shown positive results. The program identified key challenges in the area that ranged from overheating to the projectiles. The energy was also issue was also a problem, as the Navy wanted to integrate them onto destroyers, so it had to find out, had to find onboard power. Uh, let's see, one more quote from Mishima. Mishima mentioned that land-based railgun version is not having the same power generation issues as a C1, and it could tap into local electricity sources. Uh, railguns also operate by extreme electromagnetic forces on a projectile, but these forces act against the railgun structure itself, which means they tend to self-destruct. Almost done here. Conventional munitions require propellants and are costly to produce. Railguns only need a solid piece of metal to do damage, relying on the mass and velocity of the projectile. Uh, National Defense reached out to the United States Navy Main Public Affairs Office, as well as the Undersecretary of Defense for Research and Engineering, but they declined to comment, and the Office of Naval Research did not respond to inquiries. So the Navy is not responding, but it looks like General Atomics and BAE have both been contacted by Japan to work on the railgun project. That's a good article. Long article, but a good article. Let me pause right there. I'll pull up the last article. And we are at 43 minutes. Okay, last article. And this is something we covered way back in August. One of our, you know, the, within the first six months of the, the, the program. It was a SOCOM armed overwatch. Down select. Anybody been with us a while might remember that episode. I think a couple episodes we did on it. 
And to be honest with you, I think all of our information came from national defense. I don't think any other, I could be wrong on that. I probably am wrong. But all the stories we did on this armed overwatch, SOCOM, AFSOC, uh, armed overwatch program, we took from national defense. So give them credit. They've been sticking with a story. And here's another good story. This is from 27 April, Jan Tegler, SOCOM's new recon aircraft to pack Big Punch. Uh, when Special Operations Command, also known as SOCOM, selected L3 Harris Technologies and Air Tractor Inc.'s AT-802 uniform Sky Warden for its armed overwatch program last August, excuse me, the command didn't have a formal designation of the rugged, versatile single-engine airplane now known as the OA-1K. So that's it. When you hear armed overwatch for SOCOM and AFSOC, you're talking about the OA. 1K. I think O means observation, and I think A means attack. So OA-1K is is what it's called. Uh, they wanted one airplane that could collapse a stack, in quotes, aircraft needed to perform irregular warfare missions in remote locales, able to tackle the intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance missions of two different aircrafts, the unarmed U-28 Draco and the MC-12 Whiskey Liberty aircraft that were replaced, the OA-1K as a strike capability for close air support and precision strike missions with a gunship-like punch. So this sucker can carry different payloads like uh, lethal payloads, precision payloads, and of course ISR payloads. It does three things. Uh, the contract award to L3 Harris for as many as 75 of the modified turboprops could be worth up to $3 billion according to the command. It's the culmination of an effort to field a light attack reconnaissance aircraft by the Air Force and Special Operations Forces that dates back to 2009. Transformed into the Armed Overwatch Program in 2020, it became a competition between six companies in 2021, reduced to three by spring of 2022, with the OAK, OA-1K chosen on 1 August 2022, which we did a show on that. And we got the information from National Defense, I'm sure. Moving on. Low-rate initial production is already underway at L3 Harris's Tulsa, Oklahoma facility with three OA-1Ks being built and a fourth aircraft, a modified version of the Air Tractor 802 uniform the Special Operations Airplane is based on, is in use for flight envelope expansion and handling qualities testing according to the company. And there's this guy, Luke Savoy. He's going to be quoted throughout this. Uh, there's a little bit more of the article to go. He says, he's L3's president of ISR. He said the OA-1K is all about giving special operator, operators options and flexibility in a package with a small logistics footprint. While it's not clear exactly what sensor and weapon combinations uh, AFSOC, which means Air Force Special Operations Command, will load OA-1K with for different missions, L3 Harris considered and model options that OA-1 air crews can employ far away from fixed bases. So it's going to be AFSOC that runs at Air Force Special Operations Command. Uh, so here's a question from Luke. How do you start to bring a gunship level effects to an austere, very hard to reach areas or areas that are becoming harder to reach because of basing availability or where the enemy shifted? How do you bring magazine persistence you need? And we're fixing to tell you. 
uh, BAE Systems Advanced Precision Kill Weapon System, also known as APKWS, is one way to do it. Sky Warden tested and demonstrated APKWS on the eight on the AT802 uniform prototype. Uh, the OA1K can gain outsized effects with such an option. He noted the Sky Luke. Uh, the APKWS kit turns easy to move 2.75 inch rockets into precision guided munitions that can be assembled on site, and is common to other weapons like L3 Harris's Vampire Counter UAS system. I'll read that again. The APKWS kit can turn easy-to-move 2.75-inch rockets into precision-guided munitions and can be assembled on site and is common to other weapons like L3 Harris's Vampire Counter UAS system. And the reason why I read that twice is if you keep up with the podcast, we talk about Ukraine and the Vampire was one of those Counter UAS systems sent, I don't know, six months ago. And when it came out in the DoD release, nobody knew what the heck it was. I was like, what the heck is this vampire counter UAS system that's sent to Ukraine? Well, apparently we just found out it's a L3 Harris system that fires 2.75-inch rockets. Uh, moving on. When we look at what gunships like the AC-130 do in their 105mm cannon with a proximity fuse providing an area effect type of things against soft targets, the APKWS essentially brings that same capability at a fraction of the cost of multiple shots or having to put guns on a platform to provide suppression of an area to break contact against soft targets. The aircraft can carry up to eight common launch tubes, nearly matching the 10 that the AC-130s feature, and is capable of firing an AGM-176 Griffin Laser GPS-guided mini-missile, small glide munitions, or air-launched effects, which gives OA. 1K, a formidable magazine, Luke Savoy said. Air-launched effects. Remember that term, air-launched effects. You're going to hear it again, I'm sure. Uh, moving on. He compared, the, he compared it, the OA-1K, to the AC-130 capability, where you're providing the same level of these magazines, the same level of persistence, and we've demonstrated now close to 11 hours, and we can also do it to sensors. So now we're going to get into the sensors. So L3 Harris designed the OA-1K to use the company's MX-15 and the MX-20 electro-optical infrared, also known as EOIR, medium and high-altitude imaging systems for ISR and laser targeting. Our standard configuration is an MX-15 and an MX-20. We've demonstrated the ability to carry two MX-20s, the same sensors that are on the AC-130. Uh, to further accommodate various weapon loadouts. L3 Harris is performing external reinforcement on the wing that will enable the OA-1K to carry up to 6,000 pounds of ordnance. The company spent last year modeling how many harpoons the AGM-84 variant and the joint air-to-surface standoff missile extended range can be carried on the aircraft. Uh, LG Harris has also done OA-1K cap captive carry tests with AGM-114 Hellfire missiles and GBU-12 Paveway laser-guided bombs. Uh, he also noticed that GB-12s could be swapped for GB GPS-guided GBU-39 small diameter bombs or GBU-53 Stormbreaker laser GPS millimeter wave radar-guided bombs. I mean, this sucker can carry anything, I guess. 
almost done. Uh, let's see. Let me skip some of this stuff. So we'll talk some sensor to shooter stuff. So the ability for the OAK to connect with other aircraft, operation centers, or ground forces to deliver video or line of sight and beyond line of sight links was also a major consideration in the design. Yeah, so we were... We were asked how we can make people not aboard the platform as smart as possible. So if a person in an operations center calls the airplane and says, hey, we see movement in building 12, please confirm that there's no one armed. And the reply is, yep, no one's armed. That's one question and done because we're offboarding the video. The OAK-1's ability to remote its wing-mounted sensors, those cameras I just mentioned, to forces on the ground or in the air multiplies its utility. For example, when flying with three sensors, L3 Harris recognized that one could be latched to an ATAC user. Uh, ATAC is an Android smartphone mapping navigation situation, situational awareness app used by special operators. So that ATAC is basically they wear it on the chest. It's like a phone. So if this plane can talk to the ATAC, which is, that'd be unbelievable. Uh, the sensor would follow that user everywhere they went so if you're doing a convoy escort one of the sensors was always on the convoy if you're part of that convoy and you want and you want one of the sensors you can control it put it on your map and move it wherever you want information shared via the oa1k's digital backbone isn't limited to its own sensors link 16 connectivity allows special operations airplane to ingest tracks from other aircraft and share tracks with f-16s so basically, this aircraft, uh, the OA-1K, can talk to other aircraft and talk to the ground with a network. I think that's enough. Uh, the article keeps going on a little bit more, but I think basically you get the idea. This OA-1K is kind of a little monster. It can do about whatever it wants. It's got good ISR. It's got good weapons. And it's linked to the ground and to other aircraft. Pretty good story. Like I said, uh uh, whenever National Defense does the story, it's usually pretty in-depth. And the article goes on, but I gave you all the highlights, which is kind of what the purpose of the program is. All right, 54 minutes, another long episode. I apologize, but uh, hey, you got Quad A going on. You got two good stories from National Defense. You know, hopefully you enjoy the content. I've been, again, a little bit long. Maybe I'm getting too long-winded these days. But uh, anyway, I'll let you go. It's late. It's late for me anyway. It's almost mid. It's almost two a.m. Uh, but I'm sleeping in tomorrow, so maybe you should sleep in too. If you're up this late, sleep in tomorrow. We'll both sleep in. All right. So it's uh, episode one eighteen, I think. One eighteen's in the books. Uh, thank you very much for listening, and good night.